the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back as we head into hour three. Um, I've got a lot I want to do with you, but first I have neglected to ask young David what his political pin is today. What do you got there today, David? Uh, this is something that has to do with our uh, favorite holiday around here, July 4th, yep. which just occurred yesterday. I have a fun one, and I got this in a package of pins that I got from Wendell Wilkie's campaign in 1940, and I had no idea what it meant. It says, oh, Wait, say, you bought like you a bag? See? You bought a bag of yeah, it was, things yeah, that said Wendell like, Wilkie's yeah, campaign on it? 1940, yeah, it was just sort of a, a, a lot, as they are referred to uh, okay. in this business, a lot of okay. pins. Okay, okay. Um, and it says, oh, say, can you see American Jubilee? And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. It's just some patriotic thing for Wendell Wilkie in 1940. Well, I looked it up, and this comes from the 1939 World's Fair in New York, and they gave this out to, I believe, people who visited the Statue of Liberty. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. So I, it's from the, the 1939 to 40 World's Fair in New York City. Huh. And it's a pin that they... Passed out to people, or maybe they. So had would it have been a fiftieth, like or, a fiftieth anniversary of something? A jubilee is usually fifty years, right? Yeah, I don't know what it would be. Yeah, because I, I, I recall the. So thirty nine, nineteen thirty nine minus nineteen, minus fifty. Would that have been? Would that have been about when we when we got it? Maybe we're doing this on air, folks. We weren't. <laughs> we are. We are math addled around here. Uh-huh. What's nineteen thirty nine minus fifty get you? Okay, so it says it was dedicated on 1886 and became a national monument in 1924. Okay. So I couldn't tell you why. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. 1880. What's uh, 1886 plus 50? Oh, that'd be 1936. Yeah, so yeah, we're not—are you sure? And, and that's not a pin from 1936? No, this is from 1939 to 40. Yeah, huh. from the World's Fair. Yeah. Maybe, they ha- maybe they were math-addled. Sure. Maybe they didn't have the, the instant Casio calculator watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you remember those? All right. Anyway, so it was a it was a Wendell Wilkie pin. It, sort of. It was okay. in that lot, but it wasn't. That's the thing. It turned out to be for the Statue of Liberty in nineteen thirty nine to forty World's Fair. Okay, good. Yeah. Did you have a good fourth? We didn't really catch up this this show. Yeah, I, I, I saw some uh, fireworks. You recommended something for me. I wasn't going to watch it. Oh, come on. Yeah. This has become I shut a you down. yearly tradition for me since yeah. about 2020 when I discovered this. Yeah. It's John Wayne's 1970 TV special, Swing Out Sweet Land. And if you're not following me on Twitter, you ought to follow me on Twitter. It's underscore David underscore doll. And I posted about this. I I tweeted about this. And I said, if you haven't already, you really have to watch this if you have a spare hour and a half. All right. Good enough. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) For tat. (laughs) I shut you down. A Roland for an Oliver. Uh That's the new expression we use around here. I learned it from Magnum P.I. Uh, okay. We were talking – this is going to be an interestingly important issue for us um, going forward. It was an issue for Donald Trump when he was exiting the White House, and it was something that even Ron DeSantis was very attuned to in the work he was doing in the state of Florida, and it would be a great thing for other Republicans as well. 
one of the first things the Biden White House did in that famous, quote unquote, day one that they do so they talk so much about. One of the things they literally did do on day one was uh, take down the 1776 report put together by the 1776 Commission. And the 1776 Commission was a great group of scholars, and they were uh, commissioned to come up with a study that would counteract the 1619 Project. And it was a fabulous product. It was, um, I'm trying to remember who chaired it. Larry Arn was part of it uh, from Hillsdale. Matt Spaulding may have been the chair for, uh, he's also with his Hillsdale. Charles, Charles Kessler was part of it. It was everyone you'd want. You know, it was the collection of the finest, um, finest scholars on American history and political philosophy as well. And it was literally taken down this this commission report by the Biden operatives on their first day in office in twenty twenty one, and it, um, it 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 was odd because I I don't think that. It's general practice for incoming administrations to remove government publications and scrub them from websites. In fact, for those of us that love to do historical research or any kind of history and research of things previous administrations have done, um, you, you, you can get – I mean I often will pull, pull reports from administrations from – Three, four, five, six, seven farther terms back, um, and and especially, especially when it 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 happens to be something about American history, this was such a threat to them that it had to be taken down on day one. That is telling. It is telling that they could not have a counter narrative to the sixteen nineteen project. Now, what's funny about me saying a counter narrative to the sixteen nineteen project? is that the 1619 Project was itself a counter-narrative to almost every other understanding of American history from the beginning of time, or at least since since the 1770s. That's what's so weird about it. I mean, there are good liberal scholars like Sean Willentz and others who have themselves criticized the 1619 Project, but this they could not have. This is an amazingly Orwellian administration, but... Beyond that, it's amazingly Orwellian movement, and beyond that, it is the tell that I was talking about in my opening monologue. They don't want people to know the truth about American history. They don't want to teach American history. They want to teach their versions of it. Their versions of it are so important because they are so ideologicalized and politicized that they want that to be the only narrative. And that's what explains, again, what I was talking about in my opening, in my opening monologue from a couple of hours ago about why you see such a decrease of uh, American affinity for the concept of patriotism or for the love of their country as measured by Gallup and primarily and particularly so in the Democratic Party. That's not me saying it. Gallup says it. And it and it and it seems to have something to do with Republicans holding steady views of patriotism, regardless of who the president is, and Democrats having steadily declining support for patriotic concepts. And it's particularly true. You see the dips when there's a Republican president, Gallup pointed out. But this is the important key here, folks. If you want to know, if you want to know 
why there is a degraded sense of patriotism in this country. It's that very reason. It's that there is a war on the accurate and actual history of America and an ideologically sifted version, screened and sifted version, to make America look deliberately bad. Now, what the left will often say when we go into these quote-unquote textbook wars or versions of history wars, what the left will often say is conservatives, the right, the mega-magas don't want children to know history, don't want to teach history. Nothing could be farther from the truth. We don't want children to read biased history. We want children, and we are proud enough and strong enough and secure enough in our view of this country to have the whole story told, as it typically and generally has been in most textbooks since World War II. We believe in the view of history that is warts and all. They believe in the view of history that is just warts that the narrative of America is one of death and grief and sorrow and murder, if I can paraphrase an, paraphrase an, old, uh, an old joke and song by Steve Martin. But that is truly what they want you to believe, and that is why, for example, you, you have seen the decline of the kinds of celebrations that we typically see last night. Now, Arizona is a little different than most states, but I didn't realize this. Um, perhaps you did, David. I didn't know that South Dakota, the Mount Rushmore fireworks, have still been banned. They're still not allowed. Christy Noem is suing to get it ba- get them back. This was a huge celebration that Donald Trump uh, presided over um, for a Fourth of July uh, celebration and commemoration. Probably it would have been 2019, I want to say. I think it was 2019 when he did it. It was a big deal. It was one of his better speeches. And, of course, ever since, the feds have decided it's unsafe. All of a sudden, it's unsafe to have these kinds of celebrations of America. Yes, it's unsafe to be an American. You knew that was coming, right? You knew that was coming. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Well, his name uh, stirs, uh, I was going to say fear. It's not fear. It stirs cowardice at ASU, Dennis Prager's name does. And um, we're going to have more on this this whole issue of the cancellation of and the firing of the person whose institute brought Dennis Prager and Charlie Kirk to ASU. I'll have more to say about that. But, um, but Prager U., had a great video on understanding history and measuring any country's standards by today's standards. And this one in particular was done by Douglas Murray, who's a, uh, I think I think he's tremendous. I think he does tremendous work. We've had him in studio once before, Douglas Murray, we did. He's the one who did that great debate with the lefties at the New York Times and Malcolm Gladwell on media censorship that we uh, covered about six months ago. Anyway, I, I thought this was important in understanding the issue of contemporary standards versus old standards. What kind of future do we have if we destroy our past? Has anyone who has pulled down a statue of Churchill, Lincoln, or Columbus thought to ask themselves this question? I doubt it. The presumption that we can stand in perfect judgment over the lives of historical figures is not merely foolish and unfair, it's dangerous. Consider what the statue destroyers are in effect saying. 
They are saying that people in history should have known what we know. That's tantamount to saying they should have known the future. This is, of course, absurd. Yet more and more people believe it. Why? Simple. It's what they're taught. It is the fruit of an education system that long ago prioritized empathy over facts, that believes the ultimate point of history is not to learn lessons from it, but to judge it from the preordained left-wing conclusions about such ill-defined concepts as social justice, equity, and tolerance. Apart from breeding ignorance, this kind of education invites the student, the child really, to be judge, jury and executioner over issues that they, and increasingly their teachers, know little or nothing about. Because no one has bothered to teach them the nuance, complexity and context that is history. It also breeds arrogance. I know things these people did not know, therefore I am better than they were. They have nothing to teach me. In fact, I must teach them. And down comes the statue. A new, better history must take the place of the old one. In America, this impulse has culminated in the 1619 Project, an initiative started by the New York Times and now in schools everywhere, which attempts to make the arrival of the first African slaves into the American colonies the foundational date of the American Republic. 1776, the American Revolution? In the new history, that was just about protecting the founders' slave interests. These men, some of the most remarkable humans to have lived at any time, are to be understood simply by their attitude towards this one issue. The 1619 Project seeks to portray America, the freest, most prosperous nation in world history, as exceptional only in one respect, insofar as being exceptionally bad. This is a purposefully destructive view of history. It is one intended to pull down rather than to build up. A healthy, humane, and in the truest sense, liberal mind does not view history as a mere playpen for our moral judgment. It recognizes that people in the past acted on the information they had just as we do today. Sure, it would have been nice if the founders of America had abolished slavery in its constitution. Some, in fact, tried very hard to do so. But had they been unwilling to compromise, there would be no constitution and no United States. All the sacrifices of the revolution would have been lost. So a compromise balancing the interests of the northern states and the southern states was reached. It would have been nice if the Japanese had surrendered before atom bombs were dropped over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but they didn't. President Truman had to make his decision based on the information he had at the time, that an Allied invasion of the Japanese home island would cost at least a million lives, both American and Japanese. Of course, the woke mind abhors these subtleties. It knows that it is right and that everybody before our current age, year zero, should have known better. Anyway, they were all bigots. Why should we give them any benefit of the doubt, let alone admire them or learn from them? Well, maybe because, like everyone else, the great figures of the past did the best they could under the circumstances in which they found themselves. That their efforts largely succeeded is why we are here. When someone tried to give Sir Isaac Newton credit for his world-changing discoveries in physics, the great man demurred. He said he was only able to achieve what he did by standing on the shoulders of the giants who went before him.
today's left rejects Newton's humility. It doesn't believe that we stand on anyone's shoulders. It imagines that if we could only liberate ourselves from the dusty, misguided, and misinformed ideas of the past, then we might see further, fly still higher. This view is wrong. Divorced from our past, we would be utterly lost. We would not rise, but plummet. We would be forced to start again with far less insight and with far poorer examples as our guides. Ironically, thanks to the statue destroyers, the great figures of the past have never looked greater. I'm Douglas Murray, author of The Madness of Crowds, for Prager University. Just uh, always worth reading, Douglas Murray. He's a fantastic, um, fantastic thinker and writer and, and very quick on his feet if you ever do want to go back and watch those debates with Malcolm Gladwell or... Um, the, the other writers at the New York Times on the importance of um, uh, on the problem of media censorship and media bias. He's he's just tremendous, and he has that with history too. What do I got? How much time do I have left? My clock is no, no. And I understand, but how much time do I have left? My clock is yeah. My clock was off too, David. Thank you. No problem. There, there, there is an interesting point buried deep within something he said, which is. What happens if you do dispense with history? There have been efforts uh, to do this over time. There have been efforts, um, Promethean, and I use that term deliberately, Promethean efforts to begin the world again, which is, of course, the great communist revolutionary notion. Tom Wolfe wrote about it in a great essay I commend you. You can find it online called The Great Relearning. And, uh, yeah, Bill's nodding at it. He learned a lot of words in that, right? You did. Uh, when there was this movement started by Ken Kesey and the, and the Beatniks in the 50s and 60s to go back to what they considered uh, the zero point of history, which was, I think, Stonehenge, if, I'm not, if I remember the essay right, and build their own communities as if nothing had been learned since then, only with the knowledge that they had um, – only with the knowledge that they had now, but not not any knowledge based on previous information, just knowledge that they presently contemporaneously had. It was an odd thing. And as Tom Wolfe pointed out in this essay, all kinds of diseases, son of a gun, all kinds of diseases started wiping through, wiping through these communes because one of the things they dispensed with was all scientific knowledge and all medical learning, particularly about anesthetics and not using each other's, not using each other's toothbrushes and sheets and all the rest. And anyway, sanitation was one thing they dispensed with because they thought um, they knew better. And there's a real problem. There's a real arrogance when uh, the contemporaries think they know better than those whose shoulders they stand on. Anyway, we'll be right back. Now, having welcome back. Having talked about politicalized history— I um I think we should also talk about politicalized science. This is another huge problem that we have let slip under our noses, been asleep at the switch on. We talked with Brett Johnson earlier about this great federal court decision, which uh, will hopefully be the first step in putting a stop to the government uh, trying to censor information about science that they find inconvenient. Uh, particularly in social media. But um, 
as Professor, uh, let's see, uh, yes, Professor Glenn Reynolds, law professor Glenn Reynolds writes about Rochelle Walensky's exit from the CDC. She left the CDC last week with big fanfare, including a big New York Times op-ed. He, uh, he has a, uh, a good column on it, but I would like to run it by you. CDC boss's utterly laughable exit warning on politicalized science. Physician heal thyself. Outgoing CDC director Rochelle Walensky departed with a warning that we should be aware of politicalized science and misinformation. She should know. In recent months, we've seen a lot of public health folks quietly rolling back their once apocalyptic COVID advice and asking for forgiveness for the mistakes they've made. Well, to make mistakes is human and to forgive them is divine, but it's easier to forgive human mistakes that aren't pronounced using the voice of God. And deliberate misinterpretations don't count as mistakes. They count as lies, because that's what they are. In the early days of COVID, Anthony Fauci told the public that masks didn't work. It turned out that wasn't based on the science of masks and COVID. There wasn't any, but rather on a desire to preserve mask supplies for health workers. A laudable goal, perhaps, but still a lie. And when the lie was uncovered, it cost credibility. The masks don't work line was then followed almost immediately by an equally draconian pro-masking rule. And this wasn't based on science either, as there still wasn't any. But anyone who disagreed was accused of spreading misinformation and treated as an accomplice to the deaths of old people everywhere. Plus, as this was happening, then New York Governor Andrew Cuomo was actually killing people, particularly the elderly, by putting still infectious COVID patients in New York nursing homes. He was made a hero on CNN, of course. Public health officials then championed strict lockdowns because letting people leave their homes was a deadly threat to public health. It was so deadly that bicyclists, beach walkers, and even ocean paddleboarders were ticketed for posing a public danger. Birthday parties were canceled, churches shut down, small businesses closed, and neighborhood parks padlocked, all in the name of health and safety. Big box stores stayed open, though, and California Governor Gavin Newsom still hosted lavish, unmasked dinners at otherwise closed French restaurants. But, you know, the rules are for the little people. Then came the Black Lives Matter protests, and suddenly those same public health people who'd been closing parks told us it was okay for tens of thousands of people to march together in the streets because you see racism is a public health problem, which it wasn't and isn't. And even if it were, nobody was relaxing the rules for marches about STDs or measles, which are public health problems. The truth was, when it came to a collision between public health and liberal politics, liberal politics won. That's where the priorities were, despite calls to follow the science. Lefty Glenn Greenwald afterward observed, quote, This was a pivotal moment in the pandemic's history. For four months, the message was clear and unrelenting. Everyone must stay home. Those who leave, even to go to a deserted beach, are reckless sociopaths. It flipped overnight to endorse a mass protest movement liberals loved. Follow the science indeed. Meanwhile, despite repeated denials from Fauci, it turned out that the United States did, in fact, fund full gain-of-function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Experts within the public health community had suspected a lab release from the beginning, but the public was quickly told that any suspicions aimed at China were somehow racist, and such statements were censored on social media and ridiculed in the press. 
That wasn't about science either, but about politics and about avoiding accountability. Now, emails obtained by congressional investigators shed more light on efforts to cover up such connections and on the use of private email accounts by public health people so as to dodge Freedom of Information Act requests. Such behavior would violate federal law. But again, you know, those laws are for the little people. Then there was the successful effort by public health scientists to pressure Pfizer into not releasing the COVID vaccine until after the 2020 election so that President Donald Trump wouldn't be able to take credit with voters. It's not a problem limited to COVID, but that's enough for one column. What we've seen repeatedly is the use of science as an excuse for bullying people into going along with leftist policies, and there's not any actual science involved. A statement isn't science just because people who call themselves scientists make it. If it's not supported by data and replicable, it's just opinion, and sometimes just bullying. And Walensky led the pack. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I, I had some thoughts left over from last week I didn't get a chance to share on the um, Harvard fair admissions case, the affirmative action case that um, got rid of race-based preferences in, in, in higher education. I guess it'll be all elementary and secondary and higher education as well. And in one of my interviews, I think I told the story, it might have been with Sam, I was telling the story that when Bill Clinton, this is really one of the most nefarious pieces of race-based affirmative action. When Bill Clinton hosted uh, a series of national town halls in a conversation about race in uh, the 1990s, one particular one deliberately had a conservative scholar who was against race-based policies named Abigail Thernstrom in the audience, and she was specifically uh, agreed upon that she w it was specifically agreed upon she would be able to ask Bill Clinton a question or maybe even have a dialogue with him. And they did have a dialogue. And in that dialogue, this was all on TV at the time, uh, and she made the case against, you know, 30-second minute long case against race-based affirmative action policies. He said, well, then you wouldn't end up having people like Colin Powell, who was, you know, a big, a, a, a huge star at the time, 1996, 97. Uh, he was, you know, he was, there was an effort to recruit him for president. He had he, had, he was his star was shining as brightly as as it possibly anyone's possibly could, and I remember no reporter went to ask Colin Powell what he thought of that comment, but in that very moment, a huge part of the problem with affirmative action was put into sharp relief was put on display for. There's no evidence that Colin Powell himself was ever the beneficiary of an affirmative action policy. There was none whatsoever. But Bill Clinton thought, or at least thought it useful for people to think, that he was. That is to say, he didn't get there on his own, couldn't get there on his own, that they had to take his race into account over and above of his actual merits and abilities— to make him the general that he was, the star that he was, the national security advisor that he ultimately became, and later, obviously, United States Secretary of State. 
it's that Shelby Steele line again of the permanent stigma of questionable competence. And what you have seen over the past week is a replication of that vis-a-vis Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas, who wrote a hugely important concurring opinion in this case, with commentator after commentator saying Clarence Thomas was the beneficiary of affirmative action and now is slamming the gates behind him. Jason Raleigh uh, at The Wall Street Journal, a black writer himself, writes, in his memoir, A Personal Odyssey, the black economist Thomas Sowell explains one of the byproducts of racial preferences in academia. He writes, quote, one of the ironies that I experienced in my own career was that I received more automatic respect when I first began teaching in 1962 as an inexperienced young man with no Ph.D. and few publications than later on in the 1970s after accumulating a more substantial record. What happened in between was affirmative action hiring of minority faculty. To illustrate the point, Mr. Sowell recounts a student approaching him after class at UCLA one day where he taught economics in the 1970s. The student was having trouble understanding something in the textbook, and Mr. Sowell explained it to him and what it meant. And the student said, are you sure? And Mr. Sowell replied, yes, I'm sure. I wrote the textbook. The student then noticed the professor's name on the cover and was obviously embarrassed. It was a sign of the times, Mr. Sowell writes, one of the fruits of affirmative action. The political left's reaction to Clarence Thomas's concurrence in last week's ruling, court ruling, that bars the use of preferences, racial preferences in college admissions, is more evidence that affirmative action stigmatizes black achievement. Justice Thomas has been labeled a hypocrite for opposing racial preferences because he supposedly benefited from them as a college student. Yet no one has produced any evidence that race played a role in his admission to either Holy Cross College or Yale Law School. According to press accounts, Justice Thomas was recruited to Holy Cross by a dean, Father John Brooks, who wanted to increase the number of black students on campus. But the justice has long denied this claim. He started college at Immaculate Conception, a seminary in Missouri, but left after a year and returned home to Savannah, Georgia. In his memoir, he says he applied to Holy Cross at the urging of a nun, who had taught him in high school. Quote, I ranked near the top of my class at Immaculate Conception, so Holy Cross had quickly accepted my application. The only problem was money, but the director of financial aid told me that something could be worked out, close quote. It's true that some black students who had been contacted by Brooks were admitted to Holy Cross the same year that Justice Thomas transferred there, but the justices rejected the suggestion that he was one of them. A nun suggested Holy Cross. That's how I wound up there, he told the reporter. In 2007, your industry, the media, has suggested that we were all recruited. That's a lie. It's just a lie. I don't mean a mistake. It's a lie, close quote. Nor is there any evidence that Justice Thomas was admitted to Yale Law School under its affirmative action program rather than through the regular admissions process. He graduated from Holy Cross, excuse me, he graduated from Holy Cross, ninth in his class. According to the New York Times, eight Holy Cross graduates were admitted to Yale between 1968 and 1978, the decade that included Justice Thomas's law school career. Why assume that he got there only because of his race? Why question the justices' credentials but not Bill Clinton's or Hillary Rodham's, two of his fellow Yale law students? The reason is affirmative action, which has made people suspicious of black achievement and professional success. The permanent stigma of questionable competence. 
I bet a lot of you thought, because the media narrative has been that Clarence Thomas was a recipient of affirmative action. I bet a lot of you did think that. It's been everywhere, except in evidence. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. You think about the economy and you think about certainly stock market volatility. You certainly think about inflation. You think about people talking about a recession to come and the bank failures. What if you could invest in a portfolio, though, with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed? A portfolio, well, you'll know what each monthly statement will look like. No surprises where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like with no loss of principle if you need your money back at any time. Why Refi has this investment where there are no fees in a secure, collateralized portfolio they offer to you with a high fixed rate of return. Why Refi is local. I encourage you to stop by their offices on Scottsdale Road in the 101. I've been there, and I can tell you you will not get a sales pitch, and no one's going to ask you to sign a thing. When you meet with the team at Why Refi, you'll see why I trust them and like them so much, and you can too. Why Refi is a due diligence-proof firm. And you can earn up to a ten and a quarter percent rate of return. That's right, ten point two five percent fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest the letter Y, then R E F Y dot com, or call eight 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 Y Refi thirty four. Eight 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 Y Refi thirty four. Doing a bit of a monologue like I did in the first hour. By the way, anyone who misses it, you can get it nine sixty thepatriotcom uh, All our audio is there for free. Um, and then talking about the importance of it, as we did in the first two segments of this hour, I will typically get questions overnight uh, that I will wake up to from those of you that listen and email as I'm signing off in the last hour. Um, what what history books, what historians do I recommend parents give or read or have their two children or have their children read? There are good ones, and they're still in print. Um, they're just not used in our schools, unfortunately. Almost anything by David McCullough. He is uh, he is a good old school Democrat. He passed away about a year ago. His history is outstanding. It's solid and it captures your attention. If you want a general book on American history, a really good one, Wilford McClay, his book called The Land of Hope. I'm particularly partial to one three-volume history. It's now been condensed in a single volume, but if you're passionate, go with the three-volume version of America, The Last Best Hope with William Bennett. I am passionate about the teaching of American history because I'm passionate about America. You, you can't love one without the other. And as Emerson once put, put it, um, how, did, how did he once put it? Emerson once put it, Others will love what we have loved, but it is our duty to teach them how. It is our duty to. And with all this whitewashing, with all this destruction, it can be stopped. Just don't give in. Don't give in on this country. July is a really good time, especially after yesterday's holiday, to remember, rethink about that, and now think a little bit more about summer reading going forward. God bless you all. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Seth, and class is dismissed. 
Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.